You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Hear now the word. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and for gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of congregation of Israel shall kill their posts and the lentil of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of the raw of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days, but... What everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of of Egypt. 
Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You, you shall eat nothing that is leavened, and all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Last eight verses, everyone. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Let's lift up our hands as we pray to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are a needy people. We need your presence. We need your power. We need your grace. We need you to saturate us in your love. We need you to take away our fear, our anxiety. I pray that you work through your word as you have promised to do. May you, Jesus, be shown to be beautiful and believable today. That is our prayer, that we would see you, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts Work through this weak vessel, preaching your word. May your word come forth as a rock that breaks, a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces, we pray. Amen. My sermon this morning is titled, uh, Redeeming the Time. That phrase comes from a verse in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, which says, Look carefully then how you walk or how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise people, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. Two Sundays ago, I was away from you all for a time of rest and vacation uh, with my family. And uh, it was exactly two weeks ago, on Sunday the 17th of February. Something happened on that 17th of February that has happened on the 17th of February for as long uh, as I can remember, before I have conscious memory of. Midway through the day, I heard some familiar sounds, which were the scooping of flour, and the breaking of eggs, and the whisking of beaters. And then I began to smell some familiar smells, the baking and the rising of a cake, of which its aroma filled the whole entire house. Yeah, and later on, you, can, you may have guessed what happens in this ritual. The lights were dimmed, the candles were lit, and the ritual completed with the singing of a song. I knew the lyrics to it, and so did everyone else. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Joel, happy birthday to you. 
This ritual was as old as time for me. It was a practice that I'd come around once a year to remind me that I was born, that there was a time when I was not, and now there was a time there of I am all these 30 years later. It also served this ritual to me as a reminder of my identity. I am someone named Joel. I have a family. I have a community of people. I am loved by this group of people, this community. This practice had embedded in my life over time to mark time and to form my identity through the remembrance of the story of who I was. And everyone around me and my community participated in that ritual with me. I interrogate this reality because sometimes the things that we do in life, we don't stop to think about why we're doing them and the impact they have on our life or how they form us over time. You can't get around this thing with human beings. We are ritualistic creatures. We participate in practices, much of which are ritualistic. We don't even know why we're doing things often. We don't even know where they came from. We don't always, we're not always aware of how they affect us. Some psychologists and people who study the human brain have more than 40 to 50% of our actions every single day are subconscious. We don't even think about them. That's why you can get in your car and drive to work and then get there and realize, oh, wow, okay, I'm here. I wasn't even thinking because you've been formed over time. But... There are also bigger rhythms that we're a part of. In America, for instance, we have regular liturgical calendar of holy days. You know what I'm saying? We have, uh, they come back year after year, like Veterans Day or Memorial Day or Thanksgiving Day or Election Day or Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday came around this year and it was like the Saturday or Friday before the Super Bowl. And for some reason I was like... I got to eat chicken wings on Sunday. I got to do it. So Russ and I both fried up chicken wings and had a chicken wing competition. Why? I can't tell you why. I just know that it had been formed in me over time to eat, the eat wings on Super Bowl Sundays, right? And some of these, these days are meant to tell the collective of citizens in the United States about our identity, our story, our values, where we come from, what we value. Uh, and some of these days and seasons stretch into whole weeks and months of rituals, of colors, of sounds, of smells, of the kind of food you eat, to the kind of music you hear. The American Christmas season, for instance, stretches back into September now. And uh, you walk into the store and see the colors and you hear the sounds. And it forms you in a, in, in a way, doesn't it? But beyond this yearly cultural national cycle... There are, more, there are the more mundane cycles of our daily lives. We wake up. We orient ourselves to the day. We eat. We scroll. We consume media. We work. We pray or we don't pray. We have habits, most of which are unconscious, but they profoundly shape the way we live. Annie Dillard has this quote that has become one of the most important quotes in my life, which is this. She says, you know, the way we spend our days, of course, is the way we live our lives. Meaning to say it's the hours, it's the seconds, it's the days into weeks, into months, into years. That's actually our life. Our life is not just our grand philosophies or our grand ideals. I want to be this kind of person. I am this kind of person. I believe this to be true. Our, our reality is the life that we live from day to day. That's the reality. And our time is either lived by default or it's lived by design. Meaning to say, default in the world bends us in certain directions. If we put our lives on coast in the world, it will, it will bend us in self-centered directions. 
It will bend us towards sin, towards shame, towards purposelessness, towards exhaustion. It will often, in our world, without us even realizing it, we wake up and we are probably believing one of three lies. That we are what we do. That our lives are defined by what we're going to accomplish that day or what we didn't accomplish the day before or what we can't possibly accomplish by the end of the day. Or we are what we have. That our lives are defined by the stuff, the stuff in our bank accounts, how much we can amass that day, how much we can protect ourselves from losing anything that day. Or you are what other people say about you. Those are the fundamental lies that the world tells us. Those are the lies of Satan. And our time, again, is either lived by default or by design. And discipleship into Jesus is having the ideas and knowledge of our faith worked out in the seconds of our days. That is the process of discipleship. And so the Lord in redemption has always worked in space and in time. God works with real stuff, with real stories to intervene in the default time of humanity. God redeems the time to restore women and men to their created purpose. To be image bearers that reflect God's glory, his goodness, his righteousness, his courage, his creativity back out into the world. To live as human beings in the kingdom of God and not in the ways of the world, the ways of the empires, the ways of the pharaohs therein. And what is going on in our passage today in the most remarkable of ways God is redeeming the time of the Israelites through his mighty acts and his prescribed way of remembering, remembering those acts and participating in those acts. And what I want to say, brothers and sisters, is that God still does this. This is the way the Lord works. He is working in our time to redeem it, to remember and participate in his mighty acts in prescribed ways. So that's what I want to use as a means of exploring our passage today, just riffing on the title, Redeeming the Time. So first, I want to look at redeeming, and secondly, I want to look at the time. So first, redeeming. We're in Exodus 11, and I want to quickly summarize this chapter, because the Lord is setting the stage for the final act. He is setting the stage for the final deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. We've said this whole time, Exodus, that word means the way out. Eleven chapter, the 11th chapter is setting that stage for what God is going to do. And it's the Lord who had told Moses back in chapter 3, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will and out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you shall go, you shall not go empty. You shall plunder the Egyptians. And so if we're reading the story of the Exodus, once we get to chapter 11 then, it makes sense. Is that God has done battle against the false gods of Egypt. God has done battle against Pharaoh. And he is about to humble him finally. But there's so much fear and respect in the land of Egypt that the people are ready. The Egyptians are ready for the Israelites to go. And so God says, go ask your neighbors, your Egyptian neighbors, for economic restitution for your time in Israel. Because you are going to need provision for the journey that is ahead. And so that's what happens. The people of Israel go to their Egyptian neighbors and they just start asking for money. And they get it. This reveals a larger principle of justice in the Old Testament that a people who have been wronged deserve back restitution for the way they have been wronged. This is a, this is a principle that's still in our legal system today and a, and a mighty good one. But the Lord is also teaching Israel a deeper lesson. 
that in their journey, it's his acts that deliver them and it's his power that's going to provide for them. They are going to have whatever they need for the journey. God knows that as the Israelites go out from Egypt, they are going to need provision. They are going to need money. They are going to need food. God knows that you need money and food too. But the message of this passage is that he is saying to the Israelites, I am going to provide for you. I am going to provide everything that is necessary. And he still says that to you today. The Lord will provide everything that's necessary. And so Moses goes on to Pharaoh to give him this final warning. The final warning of the death of the firstborn. And it's a heavy warning. And Russ is going to dig into this theme of the firstborn next week. But you just have to keep in the context of the book in mind. This is the Pharaoh who, earlier in chapters 1 and 2, committed infanticide against white boys by casting them into the deep, by slaughtering them. And God's judgment is coming upon the land of Egypt for this act. This is the, these are the children of Abraham. These are the people to whom God said, the one who blesses you I will bless, and the one who curses you I will curse. And this is the curse of God falling upon them, God's judgment. The Lord, Yahweh, was not content to leave Israel as they were. The Passover was to be the means in which God would provide the way out, the exodus. The Lord was not satisfied to see his treasured people oppressed and suffering, so he's bringing them out through his redemption. He's bringing them out through his redemption by creating an environment where the only way out, the only way forward is out. That's what he does with us too. Where the only way forward out of the ruts we've gotten ourselves into is out. The redemption of God. But there's an angle here too in our passage that the Lord doesn't want to just free the Israelites from the power of Egypt. He wants to free them from the ways of Egypt. From the time of Egypt. From the patterns and customs that Egypt has taught them. That the empire has taught them. He wants to give his people different ways of life that form their identity by design and not by their default. And that's the struggle throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that Israel is going to wander back into human default. They are going to wander back into idolatry, immorality, into oppression and sin and false worship and greed. And God is going to have to call them back over and over again to his design for the time towards his mighty acts of redemption. And what we see in our passage is that God wants the good news of his redemption and his love to not only get into the minds, but to get into the bellies, the hands, the hearts, all of the lives of who his people are. And God still wants that. God wants to bring redemption out of the bondage of sin and evil. The Lord wants to redeem your and my life. He wants to rid failing time. Are you mean and vindictive? And failing to love the people around you in your house or in your work. The Lord wants to provide a way out. Are you viewing your neighbors with lust, only seeing them as objects to exploit and possess? The Lord wants to provide a way out. Are you so consumed with materialistic greed that you serve the almighty dollar rather than the almighty? The Lord wants to provide a way out. Are you so afraid of the opinions of others that you can't live with integrity and courage? and hope in the world, and you bend towards the desires of everyone else around you, the Lord wants to provide a way out. I'm not the prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, 
But I can tell you that the will of God in your life over this next year is that your time would be redeemed and that you would be formed in your days and in your hours more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. How does God do this? How does God bring about redemption? How does the Spirit work? The Spirit works through time and through space, through forms of worship, through habits, through practices and patterns. That, that's what we see, that God is and has and will redeem the time. So that's what I, I secondly and finally want to look at, the time. Chapter 12, where we're going to spend the majority of our time today, is very important because it's the institution in the life of Israel. It's the institution of the Passover meal and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. As the chapter says, this is when time, and this is when Israel's calendar is to reset. This is, you could say, the central act, the central liturgical reality of the people of Israel, the central act of their worship, because the Exodus is the central thing for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. That's the central thing that they remember. And what we see is that everything about this meal and the way that God commands to eat it is important. Listen to these weird prescriptions. They are to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Why? Because if you're a community of slaves escaping in the night from an oppressive power, you don't have the time to wait for your bread to rise. You are a people in a hurry. You are a people in an anxious environment, in a dangerous time that God's bringing you out of. And so that's why we see it's very important to God over and over again that they eat unleavened bread. Why? Because God wants them in the form of their worship to live the reality out again. Because God knows time is going to fade for the Israelites. They're going to forget. And he gives them liturgical drama. So that they feel it. Like, oh, we didn't have time for the bread to wait. We didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. Because if someone is waiting for bread to rise, they're not in a hurry. They're not participating in the urgency and the anxiety of the memory. And so the commentator says, such a casualness may suggest being at ease in Egypt, where the people of Israel were never supposed to be at ease. Because after Israel leaves Egypt, they always want to go back when times get hard. They say, it was, it was easier in my former life. You know, this new life with God, following God, I don't know about this. But God is giving them this form to say, no, it wasn't easy, actually. You're fooling yourself. And then he has them eat with bitter herbs because the meal shouldn't taste that good. The meal should have that twinge of bitterness to it. You see what God's doing? He's forming his people in their bellies to remember what he was doing. And then he tells them to eat with their belt fastened, their sandals on their feet, and their staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So, so picture this. Picture the drama of the memory. That you had to eat this unleavened bread. It wasn't fluffy. It wasn't flavorful. It was quickly. Uh, it wasn't, didn't even have time to eat. And they were eating it. You had to eat it with bitter herbs. You had to roast the lamb. You had to wear your belt. You had to wear your cloak. You had the door of sandals on your feet, meaning I'm ready to go. I'm waiting for the knock at the door the next morning that says from, the, one of the, from one of my people's elders, one of my tribe's leaders, it's time to go. It's time to get out. God is giving Israel a form of practicing the faith, a form of divine remembrance to remember what life was like in Egypt. 
to remember that the old life was not this dream life of giving, getting everything you want. It was not a dream life of self-satisfaction. It was a life of bitterness, serving evil powers. And one of the central things to take note of in this passage is that God institutes time for his people through repeated practice. At the beginning of the passage, he says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Every year was supposed to come back over and over again in the, in the people's life and in Israel's life so that they could begin their year by remembering this central reality and by practicing redemption practicing the redemptive love of God. Because evidently, for the way that God was working with his people, it was not enough that his people knew the facts of salvation. It was not enough that they had cerebral knowledge of what God had done. There was a barrier that God used. He crossed between the cerebral and the physical by giving them practices to do. Practice. I became a musician uh, when I was around 10 or 11 years old, that's when I had the privilege of starting formal music education and guitar and piano. And I remember as a young musician, I was just starting to learn how my fingers go on the instrument, how to finger things or what's the rhythm of things. And I remember looking out at fantastic musicians that I would see. I, I, I remember hearing beautiful music and I would say, oh, I'm never going to be able to do that, Right? Every musician, know, every musician knows that what stands between you, what stands between that great of the musician you are and the musician that you could be or want to be. It's one word. Practice. That's right. And in fact, uh, as a pianist, I often feel like I receive people's confessions over and over again in life. I go and I play out places and inevitably one to two people come up after me after the show to me, and they say, well, you know, I used to play piano. Uh, my mom, she got me lessons when I was a kid. The teacher was kind of mean, but I didn't practice, and I really regret it now, right? I still feel that way when I see great musicians. I feel the chasm that exists between us, the, the chasm of practice. Why do we so often experience the disconnect between what we believe and the ideas we have? I have this idea of being a great musician. I think I have good musical intuition. I think I have some gifts, but why can't I play like that? It's because there's a disconnect between belief and between practice. You see what I'm getting at? This is my stubborn reality in life because I'm a pastor, so that means I traffic in the ideas of in religious ideas. I'm sending up to you today pontificating ideas. But yet, I still have to go home and live out reality. And still, Oscar said to me yesterday, why are dads so mean so often? <laughs> That's my stubborn reality, okay? We say, I want to be a blank person. I want to be a generous person. You know, I, I, I know that ge generosity is a good thing. Philanthropy is a good thing. Giving my money is good. But the question is, have I actually practiced generosity? Have I actually laid down rhythms in my life to make me into a generous person? I want to be a patient person. But have I prayed? Have I put myself in situations where I have to wait for things? I want to be a selfless person. But have I served another person before I thought about my own needs and concerns? 
I want to be a present person. I want to be focused with people. But have I put away my smartphone when I start talking to someone? Or am I going, uh huh, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, baby, yeah, I hear you. This is our stubborn reality, isn't it? Is that we often know there's a chasm that exists between our ideals of the faith, what we believe is true about Jesus, about the life that he's brought us into in the kingdom, and then our lives and the hours and seconds of our days. People of God, discipleship is learning how to practice the faith. And just like my journey as a musician, uh, I still got a long way to go. And we all still have a long way to go. But th- there's, this, there's this thing in this passage that is right in the face of it, but I missed it until I thought about it more this week. God, in the midst of this dramatic moment for Israel, in which he is going to bring the people of Israel out, you know, things are tense, things are dramatic. What does he do with them right before he does that? He stops for this whole chapter, this whole chapter that I'm preaching on, and he gives them this uh, liturgical ceremony. You're like, well, God, I mean, we could have done that afterwards, right? But God, before the redemptive act took place, gave the people of Israel a form to remember it by. Because God knows how humans work. We are not just brains on a stick. That's one of the great lies of American Christianity, post-enlightenment Christianity that we are trying to overcome. We aren't just cerebral creatures. We're embodied creatures. We have minds. We have wills. We have have loves. We have desires. And God knows this. And so he gives his people a form of worship in their hands and in their bellies and in their bodies because he knows that once they leave and once time gets tough, they're going to need more than just their head knowledge to live the life of faith. And what we, what we see in this passage is that forms matter, okay? Worship forms matter. The people of the Lord were commanded to worship the Lord in a certain way here and with a certain form. And over again in the story of Israel, God's not just going to leave it here. He's going to add more feasts. He's going to add more fasts. The Lord's going to prescribe more forms of worship. But a, a maxim that we often hear in Christian worship is that it's not about, it's not about uh, religion. It's not about ritual. It's about relationship, Right? Meaning to say, if I don't feel something, like spontaneously, if I don't feel like worshiping in a certain way, if I don't feel like living in a certain way, then it's not true. Then it's not authentic. But that's not how God works. God does want your spontaneous love. But God understands that the way that he forms your loves is through forms so often. You might be waiting for a change in your life because you're like, I'm going to be this kind of person when I finally get it. And when I finally feel like it, I do this all the time in my life. I'm going to be a generous person when I, when I finally get in this right place and I'm, I'm ready to give. You ain't going to be ready to give. So that's why God gives forms and he gives practices. You may have noticed we care about the form of worship around here. We care about the form of liturgy. You may have noticed that liturgy in some ways has become maybe a little bit more scripted at parts that we care about the tradition of the church and our celebration of things and the word and the sacraments and prayers and the church calendar. And the reason why we deeply care about that around here is because we believe the things that we do in here on Sunday morning form us to be a certain kind of people. And we, as leaders and designers of worship, want to make sure that we're forming people in a holistically biblical way. 
And maybe you haven't lived a lot in a church that follows the church calendar, and maybe you're skeptical of that. And I get that because I didn't grow up living in a church that followed the church calendar. And Lent begins on Wednesday, by the way. Maybe you're skeptical of it. What I would say to you is the church calendar is the story of God's redemption that we participate in year after year until that story starts absorbing into our practices so that we wake up and we orient ourselves to the Christ by saying, I am a beloved creature made by God, redeemed in Jesus Christ, given the power of the Holy Spirit this day. We care about daily habits here because we believe that it is in our days that God forms us. Never feel that it is too late in your life to change your patterns and your practices. Never feel that it is too far gone for redemption to take place in your life. Redemption stands at hand. It is available to you. You need your community, though to live out this life of practice and faith together. And what we see in the passage is that the practices of faith have to be taught and they have to be taught, uh, passed on. So we have, to, uh, we, have to, we have a caution here, is that we don't just worship in these forms and think that that's going to do the trick, some magic power. It's also important that we have uh, teaching that undergirds why we are doing what we are doing. We don't just pray, but we seek to understand what prayer is. We don't just take the Lord's Supper. We seek to understand what it's all about. We don't just say it's Advent or it's Lent. We seek to understand the, the theology behind the practices. And so God tells them at the end of the passage, he says, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord gives you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And listen to this. And when your children say... What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And you're left with this beautiful imagery of the children participating in this form. You can see a little Israelite girl, say 3,000 years ago, maybe 400 years after the time of the Exodus, and the Israelites are keeping this feast, and she's eating unleavened bread, and she's like, it's not that good of bread. She's eating the bitter herbs. She's eating the lamb. And naturally, her little inquisitive mind is going to go, why, why are we doing this? And the, the parents, is why we're children, are given the amazing task of saying to the child, this is why we're doing it. Because it's about the story of God's covenant. It's about the Lord's Passover when he passed over our houses, when he spared us from judgment, when the penalty of sin and death did not come upon us and we were passed over. And that's why the sacrifice of this lamb is sitting here. So we see here a principle, and it's a principle of why we, we call our children here children of the covenant. Because we raise them to be people of the faith, we have them participate in the practices of our faith. We are in the walls of our houses supposed to form them in the knowledge and practices of the faith. And we're supposed to treat them like little Christians who are naturally going to ask, what is this all about? Why are we doing what we're doing? And we are given the task to form their understanding of God in the world. It's a deep calling. It shapes the way we treat our children around here. We shape them to be people of God, to be children of the covenant, and we wait for the Holy Spirit to bring that fruit to life in them. That's what we pray for. That's what we wait for.
shaping our children's faith, but also shaping each other's faith in the community. Because some are going to be more practiced than others. Oftentimes, as a musician, I would go into a rehearsal, and I would understand that I was the one that had practiced the least. And we often experience that in community life, don't we? We have people who come to our uh, gatherings, our small groups, or we get to know people, and we're like, okay, they still have a little bit of practice left, or I still have a little practice left in this area. Do you see the vision of formation for the people of Israel in this passage? That they were supposed to inform one another about why it is the why it is we do the practices that we do. But in talking about all this doing, you might get nervous. So does, is the performance of these religious rites and these forms of worship, is this what got God's attention over time? No. It, we see in this passage that Israel already had God's attention. Israel was already the promised children of Abraham. God already visited upon them. He heard their cry. He said, I'm redeeming you. It is his divine initiation. It is his divine grace that takes the first step. It is not, do this so I will love you. But instead, it is, I love you. You are being redeemed. You are eternally secure. Don't you want to live in that reality? So do this. Anytime we talk about the disciplines of the faith or the practices of the faith, the temptation of human time, as we've, as we've already talked about, is that we want to define ourselves by what we do. We say, I am what we do. And so we think, if we haven't prayed, well, God doesn't love me as much. And you might think that's a cliche statement, but I know in my, truth that, I know in my life that that truth is really deep and hard to uproot. That if we're not living for God, then God doesn't love us. God says, show me your love and I'll give you mine. That is not the transactional relationship of the people of God. It is instead, I love you with an everlasting love. And I want your time. I want your days. I want your time to be redeemed in that love. Because God wants to not just restore us from the place of sin and death into the place of salvation in Jesus Christ. God wants to form us from the ways of death the ways of evil to the ways of Jesus Christ. You are not just a redeemed sinner if you are in Christ. You are a redeemed image bearer. And so redemption is God restoring your will, your creativity, your love for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of the world, because our practices and our formation is not lived for our sake. It's for the sake of the, na the nations, the people around us. And all of this grace... And all of this love of God and all of this forgiveness, it finds itself in a principal sign in the passage. It is the sign of the Lamb. Moses is told by God to instruct the congregations to gather a lamb without blemish. Does that language sound familiar from our word of assurance today? A lamb without blemish to on the 14th day of the first month slaughter the lamb as a sacrifice and to take its blood and to smear it with hyssop on the door. The blood of the lamb for Israel becomes a sign and a seal of something that God has passed over them in his judgment. He has not visited judge, judgment upon those houses that are marked by the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb. Not only has he passed over them, he's made them holy. He's consecrated them as his people. He's made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And what we see here is foundational to the story of the Bible. Keep in mind, this is written 16 to 1400 years before A.D. 
before the life of Jesus. And what we see is a pattern established by God that through the sacrifice of a living and pure lamb, God will make peace with his people. He will pass his judgment over them and he will save his people from destruction and he will make his people holy unto him. And the participation in this form over time and the way it's preserved for us now That form of the Passover prepared the people of God for a new exodus and a new Passover. When Jesus, it is not without amazing significance that in all of the Gospels, Jesus' last supper with the disciples takes place during the week of the Passover. And at the beginning of the meal, it is Jesus who says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And what we see is that the day before Jesus was killed, the day before the redemptive act took place, Jesus instituted what? A practice, a form of remembrance. Take my body, it's the bread. Take my blood, it's the cup. Before the redemptive act took place, Jesus gave his people a means of remembrance. And it's a means of remembrance that has existed in the people of God for 2,000 years. Somehow, this practice, this meal, it has been passed down from generation to generation because each generation does it, and as we do it, our kids ask, what does this mean? And we tell them, it is the Lord's Passover. When he passed over the people of God, he passed, his sin and judge- he passed death and judgment over the people of God and the sacrifice of the pure and spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Here we are 2,000 years later, a people who need to be formed into remembrance of this practice. Do you see the beauty of that? Do you see the cohesion of that? That somehow God has written this story in this amazing way through a multitude of human authors by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit to pass it down to us so that here we are left with a meal of remembrance. But not only that, this meal of remembrance is what to be the salvation that we participate in week by week. You come here on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. You come here every week to be formed into the new Passover, into the new Exodus, as the new Passover Exodus community, the people of God who have been redeemed by the body and blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, and who are to be the people who go out as a blessing to the world, restored as image bearers unto God in our practices, in our habits, in our daily lives. This is God redeeming our time. Thanks be to him. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.